Hi, this is Mike McGinn, and I plan to stay a believer, too. I've always loved that song, Curtis Mayfield, Live at the Bitter End. And uh, it's it's a song I reach to when I'm working on stuff, and things are hard, and I always want to be a believer. And I have with me, on my very first podcast, I believe I can do a podcast, too, uh, Maru Mora Villapando, who's an absolutely amazing immigration rights activist I met when I was mayor of Seattle. So, my story... I became so consumed with the idea that I could make Seattle a better place, you know, for my kids, for other people's kids, really an environmentally sustainable place that lifted people up. I kind of dropped everything and just got deeper and deeper involved in politics, became mayor eventually. And along that journey, I met other people who were working really hard to lift up their own communities. They were working on the things that they were passionate about. And a lot of those stories don't get out into the public. A lot of people don't realize the challenges various communities face. And it's not just people doing it now. I learned of an amazing history in Seattle of people doing it for decades. So I came up with the idea of this podcast in which I want to just try to bring those voices to you, not just what they're working on, but their own stories. And today is Maru, Maru Mora Villapondo. And uh, I, I met her because she was working on Latino advocacy issues. And as I learned more about her and her story, I was kind of blown away. She heads a group called Latino Advocacy. She's been working very hard on changing the rules on uh, people who are living in this country who want to stay here, who want to be part of this community. So Maru Mora, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I described who you are and what you do. Why don't you give it a shot? Who are you and what do you do, Maru? Well, I usually introduce myself as an immigrant because that's who I am. But it's it's a little bit confusing because I've been here for over 20 years. So I don't know if I really count as an immigrant anymore. And uh, I'm a mom. I have a, a teenage daughter. And uh, we both together been working a lot on immigrant rights and racial justice for a long time. So tell me, tell me what you're doing right now. What are the issues you're working on right now? Well, there's a lot of issues to work on, right? Uh, especially if you're an immigrant and a person of color. What we're focusing uh, on is uh, the issue of detention and deportations against uh, immigrants, both documented and undocumented. And this year, we are building uh, the work we did last year in 2014 in regards to the detention center that is located in the city of Tacoma, that went on hunger strike. Over 1,200 people there went on hunger strike. Uh, there were actually three hunger strikes in 2014 altogether. And this year, we are we decided that our work against detentions and deportation has to match and intersect with the work that is being done uh, in general to stop the uh, criminalization of people of color. So we are working really, really close now with people that are working on the uh, Black, Lighter, Black Lives Matter campaign. And, you know, the issue of the uh, new prison jail that is being um, built in King yeah, County, in King right, County, the juvenile um, jail facility, right? Uh, which is outrageous for us uh, that the money will be invested in that. So um, let me let me ask you, you said people in the detention centers went on hunger strikes. And what are the detention centers? Well, that's a good question. Back in the day, uh, like back in the 70s, there was no an idea of private prisons period. In the 80s is when we saw the the beginning of a private uh, prison industry. 
By the mid-90s, this same industry went into immigration arena. The immigration arena is, is a civil matter. It's not criminal uh, law. Mm. But by the early 2000s, after the 9-11 tri- tragedy, uh, these companies benefited by the privatization of detention centers, which means people that are in the process of being deported from the country, they are held in one place. And so here in Seattle, we used to have one by the stadiums. It's, it's this building that, that now is going to uh, have like arts and history. Well, I, that, I helped. I, it, yes, it's now right? a wonderful artistic space. But if you went down into the basement of that building, you could still see the people who wrote stories and wrote their names in the walls, carved them into the walls as they were being held for right. detention long people ago. From all, all around the world. And so that place uh, that used to hold, I, I, rem- I think I'm, I remember about 100 people uh, shut down. And then a new place was built in Tacoma. And this place uh, is private. Uh, it's a private company. It's privately owned, privately run. And it, it holds uh, 1,575 people. And so it's a regional detention center. And so people that are in the process of being deported, not only from Washington State, but all the way from Alaska or Idaho or other places, they're held there. Some uh, instances, people that just cross the border in, in, in the south, uh, they're sent here in this, to this area. And so it's a, it's a terrible place. It's a place that makes money out of uh, deportations, out of the separation of families. So, um, so why, why, tell me about the hunger strikes. Why were they started and what was the, what was the demand being made out of them? Yeah, uh, well, this is not, or last year was not the first time that a hunger strike had happened. Uh, that place opened in 2004. So it's been 10 years that it's been around. And between 2007 and 2009, there were a couple of hunger strikes that we were aware of. And a couple of them were, uh, the inspiration was a little bit different every time. In one instance was just that the food was so terrible, people didn't want to eat it. Uh, Actually, there were 300 people sick because of the terrible quality of the food. In another instance is because people work at the detention center. People are paid $1 a day to clean to do the kitchen, uh, to do laundry services. And so at that time, 100 men went on a hunger strike because for a month they didn't get paid. So that was a while ago. The difference with those two between in, in the 2014 uh, hunger strikes is that there was not uh, organizing support in the outside and there was not really media coverage. But 2014 was different. What inspired the hunger strikes in 2014, the first one in March, was that we, undocumented immigrants and allies, uh, U.S. citizens, decided to block deportations at the detention center. So we shut down the street, and one of the buses that was taking people outside the detention center, and we stopped, and they saw us. When they went back into the detention center, they told the rest of the people what have they, they have seen. And so all of them were complaining, all of the detainees were complaining about the, the terrible food that they're given, not enough food, they're usually hungry. And because they're hungry, they can buy items at the commissary, but the commissary items are really expensive. The phone services are also really expensive. You don't get anything free in the detention center. Little uh, or almost no access to, to medical services. No guarantee that you're going to have a hearing. If you have a hearing and if by any chance you get a bond set for you to 
you know, be out with your family while the civil proceedings continue against you. The bonds are really expensive, sometimes of up to $35,000. So all of these different conditions made it possible that all these guys, because the majority of people that are, are men, decided to go on hunger strike because they knew there were people in the outside that were in support of them. So when they, a week and a half later, after we did our action to stop the buses, we were uh, receiving calls and texts, calls from relatives, radio stations, a couple of, uh, a one lawyer that went in, she got an, a note from, from one of her clients saying 1,200 people here are on hunger strike, this is, these are our demands. And we began this, the, the, you know, all the organizing in the outside, and we were able to get international media attention to how, what's happening. How did that make you feel when you heard all of the response from inside the detention facility for what you had done outside? Well, that was a really important moment in my life because I'm an undocumented immigrant. I've been here for 20 years in, in the States without a piece of paper that says, yeah, you're okay to stay in the country. And I've been here for over 20 years. So what I decided is that uh, I witnessed other undocumented immigrants in 2013 and 2014 doing civil disobedience actions, saying, we're not going to take it anymore. There's no immigration reform. Politics are being played with our lives. And we're just talking about a piece of paper. (laughs) So we've done a lot. We've done a lot of work. We did policy. We did meetings, we did marches, we, we did so many things and nothing was working. And I personally felt that our work was being hijacked by, by the Democrats and the Republicans. Really? Um, so what did you do then? You were saying that you were watching this and that you're an undocumented yeah. immigrant. Yeah. And I have been in, in lobbying for, for, for policy for years at, at every level, lo- local, state and national. Uh, but when I saw other undocumented immigrants putting themselves on the line and saying, we're going to stop deportations ourselves, we are risking not only arrest, but deportation itself, uh, we, we're going to do it because we have to do it. There's, there's no much left for us to so do. So what did you do? I joined. I joined the campaign. Then the campaign is called Not One More. Uh, and I talked to my daughter. She's a U.S. citizen. For many years, I wanted I'm to- I'm sorry, you talked to your daughter. What did you talk to your daughter about? about the fact to go out public and say, I'm a no-documented immigrant, I'm going to stop this bus. <laughs> and if I get arrested, I just I get arrested. And um, That's a pretty big step to take. Yeah. How did your daughter react? Well, for many years, I wanted to do something like that. And we had these conversations. I mean, obviously, you, you don't have to... I bet, Mike, that you talk to your children about many things, right? And many yes. risks that they're going to face. Right. You you probably talked about, you know, if, if the police, I, well, maybe not because your kids are white, but <laughs> mostly white, mostly white. Right. Yeah. yeah. As long as, as you're white, you're OK with police. But if you're not, you know, you have to tell your children, watch out for police or, you know, there's so many dangers outside. But for, for my daughter, it, the danger is more about what if I get deported? So she knew since she was five that at any point she and I could be the, uh, separated. So she, you know, she had to grow up with this this idea that I could lose my mom at any, at any point just because of a civil proceeding. So she she has been prepared for for any situation uh, throughout the years. And for many years, I also wanted to, you know, do something public so people don't have this stigma of you know we're undocumented and there's something wrong about that or you should be you should feel ashamed about it, which is not. It's just civil proceeding that we have to go through. Uh, that doesn't exist, then that's why so many of us are undocumented. So 
when I talked to her about this campaign, I told her, I know how you feel because for many years you don't want me to do uh, anything public as undocumented immigrant. But I feel this is this is the time. I mean, I have to do it. I I can't explain exactly why, but I have to do it. So she agreed. And and so what did you what did you do then? You said you blocked the bus. Tell me about blocking the bus. Yeah. So I I contacted other people that I I thought that would agree with my idea. And actually, yeah, they agreed with me. Was it your idea to block the bus? Well, I I had that idea, but it turned out that somebody else had the same idea. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. I mean, it wasn't nothing new. Like I said, others have done it before. And we, you know, about total, about 50 people came together to, to do this action. Ten of us were the ones blocking the street. And and how did you block the street? Well, we actually uh, locked arms with these PVC pipes. And we were in a circle in the middle of the street. We, uh, we got there uh, like at 6.30 in the morning on a Monday because uh, we knew that deportations were happening on Monday mornings. And we just stand there in the middle of the street and people that were coming to work, they were really upset. <laughs> and then we decided to stay there as, you know, for at least three hours if police didn't arrest us. So we stayed there. At some point, we decided to broke our circle of 10 and we ran because there's a back street. We knew another small bus was coming trying to get through the small street. So we, we ran... So I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to draw the picture here. You've The 10 of you have decided, you've sat down in the middle of the street, you've locked arms, which are covered with PVC pipe, uh, to, uh, which I understand is to make it harder for the police to right. remove you. And how long were you sitting there before somebody noticed that you were there? Well, they, they immediately noticed, <laughs> yeah. which we were really, con- we were kind of concerned that they would kind of figure out we were planning for a while because it took us months to plan. Um, oh, I see. So you'd been there checking it out yeah, and making plans. Yeah, of course. Plans, yeah, there's a right? lot of planning behind an action like this if you want to do it right. Yeah. Um, and we actually contacted media. So we were able to get a couple of media uh, right. people out there early in the morning. So what happened next? You're sitting there. You've drawn the attention of the authorities. Yep. What happens next? Um, yeah, so police came. Uh, they were not arresting us. We had a group of people talking directly to police. And when we blocked, when we broke the circle of 10 and ran to the back street... We were able to stop this other small bus, uh, and that was like that was, I think, the the, the most critical moment of uh, the whole campaign. Why was that so important? When we blocked that bus, we sat on the street, interrupting the the, the traffic, right? And I could see through the windshield hands waving at us. I couldn't see their faces, but I saw hands, and I knew that those hands were the hands of detainees, where hands of people being taken away, being separated from their families. That's when I realized, this is why I'm here. So we start chanting, you're not alone. And we chant nonstop. And after that moment, I wasn't afraid anymore. After that moment, I was ready to be arrested and, and be placed in deportation proceedings if it was you know, necessary. Um, because I thought, we did it. You know, We did it. We were able to... To stop this, we were able to contact, you know, I do I, I contact with them. We only saw hands because they're shackled. The detainees the are shackled from their hands to their waist and, and feet. So when they can really walk because they're, they're both of their feet are shackled. They're, they have uniforms. I mean, it's like a regular prison. So that, that was the moment that made it for me. 
Uh, I'm not a religious person, but that was like my church right there. That was that was the most important moment. Your daughter must be very proud of you now. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I've never done anything nearly so dramatic as you, Maru. But I felt that when I decided to run for mayor and decided to take that action, you know, my kids were proud of me for taking a chance. So I can only imagine how your daughter must feel about you doing that and uh, taking those types of risks. I I want to, you, you've told us that you were an undocumented immigrant and We've, this unbelievable story you just told us about this moment of courage and what it meant to you. But there's a journey to get to that moment of courage, isn't there? How did you, uh, where are you from originally and how did you come to America? Um, well, I came to the United States from Mexico because America for me is the whole continent. <laughs> Good correction. Good correction. Um, uh, I'm from Mexico City uh -huh. and I came to the United States in the early 90s. I was married at the time. And so I came here just for a few months. That was my idea. Mm -hmm. um, back in Mexico, I was politically involved, very much so. So I went back and forth a couple of times, and there was a time in, in the early 90s, 94 actually, when they, you know, in Mexico, there's only one party, really, political party. And they've been in power for over 70 years by then. And so when they have the presidential candidate, whoever it was, that was the next president, period. I mean, was, everything else was just a farce. Uh, so obviously I was not part of that party. I was part of the left party, right. which it doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, this guy, the presidential candidate, gets killed right before the election. And I figure, man, if he gets killed, anybody gets killed here. You mean the presidential candidate you were supporting? No, the uh, the, the official from the, the official, official party. Yeah. Right. So at that point, you're saying nobody's safe. Nobody's safe. Uh, and you can see how Mexico it is right now. It's not it's exactly like that. So right. I decided not to do the go back and forth. And I decided to stay here in the in the United States. What were, you, what were you doing at the time for work or occupation? Well, you know, as a, as a new immigrant, you do anything and everything. I, I, I did the good thing is that when I came, I was already speaking English, so um, it wasn't that bad. I, I didn't have to do like the, you know, kitchen like many immigrants have to. I, I was doing cashier in different restaurants. I didn't like it. And then I went and worked for, you know, thrift stores. Uh, so I did a, a many different rate of, of jobs, anything. You know, I, I did a nanny, uh, <laughs> which I didn't like it either so much. Because you know everything, everybody thinks that women should be nannies, but I think that men should should, should nanny too. They should learn how to take care of children. I'm with you on this one. <laughs> right? It's a it's a test of manhood, actually, <laughs> to is. deal with a crying baby. It is not every easy. everybody's got to do it. So I did all of that, and then at some point, I wanted to do photography. So I actually worked for a couple of photo labs, and I I, I really enjoy it. I I really liked it. How long did it take you to find activism then, or find to work on causes when you were here? Well, I always wanted to, but I felt that the Latino community was really small. I didn't really know where to find another time. Seattle, you know, usually white. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that hasn't changed much. But really it was after my daughter was born that I decided that I should do something because I didn't want her to grow up as a Latina, although a U.S. citizen, uh, being, you know, facing racism. And, uh, you know, it's, I think the first time I met you, Maru, and I'm not sure was in Snohomish County. It's the first time I remember. I may have met you before. And it was a Latino community mm -hmm. event. And what I was struck by was the, you know, the size of the Latino and Mexican community, except it wasn't in the center of Seattle. It's, right. it's out in the suburbs. 
which we tend to think of, oh, the city is the place where our communities of color are and the suburbs are the white places. And that's really flipped over the years. And I remember that conversation then about trying to, you know, you have a power structure and a political structure, which is overwhelmingly white and yet a growing and growing population of uh, Latinos or, or, or Asians or other mm-hmm. recent immigrants and trying to bridge that connection. And that was where I met you mm-hmm. uh, the first mm-hmm. time, I yeah. think. Yeah, you know, I remember. I remember. And uh, for us, was really, really important that you were there because you're right. I mean, some of us advocate uh, for people to understand that not many Latino immigrants are in Seattle anymore because it's expensive. Uh, it's expensive in so many ways. So uh, many of us have to you know, live outside uh, Seattle, but then work in Seattle. So Seattle is always like the center anyway. It's so centralized. The power is so centralized in a way. Then having you at that time as the mayor of Seattle coming outside Seattle and reaching out to the Latino community, that was really impressive for us because that that really didn't happen. It's nice to say that, but, you know, I was first time running for mayor and I needed friends and I found friends (laughs) in lots of places. But also, I, I think there's so many stories that we haven't, that aren't told and that people don't understand who else lives in their community and what they're doing. And that was the journey I took. And I said, I mentioned that at the beginning, that the opportunity for me to learn more about that. Another event that really stuck out for me as mayor was meeting the dreamers when uh, young people who had grown up here um, were Seattleites in every way, shape and form, but weren't legal mm-hmm. in the country. And they met with us and, and there's been change at the national level, but not the full change we want to see. And that affected me too, because I realized in that in those conversations, in those personal conversations with those young people, hey, there are kids too. They're everybody's kids. There are community's kids. They don't belong somewhere else. They belong right here. How can we how do we get that message out? Right. So that was another story that really made it an impression on me, uh, that personal connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I remember that meeting actually when you invited. I don't know. I think it were like forty dreamers all together, or maybe more, and it was. For me, it was so great that you you were able to you know open the space for all of them to come and talk and, and share their different experiences. But also the fact that all people always complain, oh, this is a federal issue; only the feds can fix it. Uh, yeah, but they're local things, things that the the cities and, and and local entities can do. And you did it. I remember very very vividly when we asked you that if the, for example, the electricity bill could list more than one peop, one person. Because these kids needed to do to prove that they've been in the country, but you know they don't have any documentation that proves how long they've been in the country. And you said, "Sure, let's work on that," and it's happening already. And that we don't see in other in other cities. Uh, they still think, "Oh, that's a federal issue. Let's let let the con- Congress and Obama take care of it." Which, in reality, uh, cities can do so much. Well, my view is always that if you're if the people of a city cares about it, then the elected officials should care about it, whether it's under their jurisdiction or not. They should do something, right? So. What advice would you give to an activist coming up? What would you tell them about what it takes to be an activist and what they should do and how they can become engaged and make a difference? What advice would you give? Well, I think that for me it was a process. And the first part of the process was to understand that although I'm an undocumented immigrant, I still carry a lot of privilege. Um, my skin is not dark. Uh, you know, if I if police or uh, immigration enforcement sees me on the street, they might think, eh, you know, it's just okay and let me go. <laughs> if I open my mouth, that might be different. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
being said, uh, I mean, I also, I went to college in Mexico. I, when I came here, I already spoke English. So in general, I think I carry privilege. And I think that anybody that really cares about human issues, they need to understand where their privilege is, what kind of privilege they carry. And then how do you engage with other groups that are suffering oppression? How do you, how do you engage with them? Are you an ally? Are you going to be a leader? Are you going to be a follower? What is your level of commitment to any human cause? And nowadays it's so easy to be engaged because there's you know, all these electronic technology ways to go about it. I remember back in the, in the early 90s, it was not as easy to no. connect. Right. No, and so, but there's something when you say privilege, privilege also means that you have power, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And even people, and this is one of the things that it always is inspiring to me, that power can come, even people without privilege can have power if they organize. Absolutely. And that's what the hunger strike did. You know, you had people being detained uh, that were not able to communicate with each other. They haven't seen the sun or get fresh air sometimes in years. They're not able to see their families, but only probably once a week, even if they have a, a family that they can go and visit. And they were still able to, to organize a hunger strike and bring the attention of international media and even put enough pressure in President Obama to do the executive action he did in November. So if you're a person, you have power. If you have privilege, you have more power. Your advice is do something with it. Absolutely. Do something right with it. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. So one of the things, this is my first podcast, and we're, thank you so much for being my guest on this. And, and I'm, I'm, this is an experiment, but I asked you to pick out a song that meant something to you. And you picked out, tell me the song you picked out. Yeah, it's, uh, the group is Santa Cecilia, and the, the song is called Ice, El Hielo, and it describes uh, the way we undocumented immigrants live in this country, which usually we're hiding and afraid of uh, being separated from our families. Tell me a little bit more about the, the songs in Spanish. Tell us what she's singing. Well, uh, it says that we're ready to go to work. Um, and when the employer gets there, we want to make sure that everything is ready, you know. Um, and if we get caught by ice, that's that's the way we live. That's briefly what it says. <laughs> and why is the song important to you? Um, well, every time I do workshops or presentations, I present this, this song and the video. Uh, majority of the people in the video are undocumented themselves. Uh, it makes me cry no matter how many times I've seen it or hear it. Um, it hits it hits at home, you know. It's that's exactly how we live. That's that's a good way to present um, that we don't have to live this way. If we are recognized as human beings, as everybody else, uh, just give us the piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. I always say that it's just a piece of paper. Just let us, let, you know, recognize that we're part of the community. Not, it's not let us be part of the community because we already are part of the community. We want you to recognize that we are part of the community. Well, thank you, Maru Moravillo Ponder, for your heart and for your courage and for being part of the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a privilege also to be here. Pasa por salir a trabajar.